Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, my name is Tiffany McDonald. I'm a senior advisor at Global Council. And today we're going to talk about India. In particular, we're going to focus in on the trade and economic situation in India. I'm joined for this discussion with two very good colleagues, Ross Nugent, who is an associate in the trade and manufacturing practice, who previously worked at the Irish Foreign Ministry and at the European Commission, and who at GC supports clients navigate political and regulatory developments, particularly around trade-related issues. And I'm also joined by Ed King, who is an associate in the global macro practice. And prior to joining Global Council, Ed worked as an economic analyst at a public policy think tank. And part of Ed's work at Global Council includes analysing how an increased focus on Asia in the UK might create opportunities for companies. Thanks, Tiffany. Nice to join you. Yeah, excited to talk about India. Thanks, Tiffany. It's great to have you both here joining me today. I should introduce myself. I have worked as an Australian diplomat for over 20 years. But to underline that any of the comments that I make today are entirely those of my own. So Ross and Ed, India is the world's largest democracy and one of the fastest growing economies. It recently surpassed China as the world's largest population. It's a member of the G20. In fact, it's a host this year. It's a member of Quad with Australia, Japan, the US, and a member of BRICS with Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. It is led by Prime Minister Modi, who has uh, received rock star welcomes in the UK, Australia, and the US. But Ed, if we can start first uh, by discussing the, the economic situation in India. We're hearing a lot, and in, indeed feeling a lot, of the challenges of the cost of living issues in the UK the recovery from COVID, the impacts of the war in Ukraine, all of those things are having a a negative impact on economies. We're seeing the inflation at at extremely high and sticky levels. How has the Indian economy been performing recently? Thanks, Tiffany. Yeah, obviously India has been significantly impacted by the dual shock of COVID-19 and subsequently the war in Ukraine. But actually, its growth has proved quite robust recently, and it's driven largely by private consumption and investment. The Indian economy grew by 7% in 2022, and in the first quarter this year has recorded growth of 6.1%. And yeah, as I say, this was driven largely by private consumption, which has benefited from actually a robust labor market and rising consumer confidence, which is something that we haven't really seen in some advanced economies. And also in terms of investment, private investment was boosted by higher corporate profits. One one trend that we have seen as well is that India is benefiting from a strong external demand for IT services, given the increased digitization and the ongoing trend of relocating back office and R&D functions to India. And as a result of that, the share of 
business and professional services within India's total services exports has continued to increase. And that essentially means that the value of its services exports is larger. So this is partly helped, of course, by heavy or strong links to Silicon Valley via India's vast diaspora, which means that innovation and the nascent services startup culture is still performing very strongly. There is one slight cause for concern, though, and this was a sharp fall in FDI inflows last year, and that's largely due to external factors. Gross FDI inflows fell by 16% year on year, and that's the first such decline in a decade. Effectively, was driven by tighter global credit conditions and geopolitical uncertainty around the war in Ukraine. All right. So private consumption really driving growth, strong consumer confidence and remarkable activity and vibrancy in the services space. But the the fall in FDI inflows, 16% you mentioned, is that expected to last, Ed? First thing to note is actually that the fall in FDI inflows does also reflect base effects. So the previous fiscal year had seen a sharp increase in inflows because interest rates were relatively low and investment activity was high. But essentially, FDI inflows are expected to recover strongly. And this is in part due to supportive government policy measures. So, for example, to attract investment, the government has introduced new investment facilitation measures like the National Single Window System which streamlines the approval and clearance process for investors, entrepreneurs, and businesses. And venture capital investment in unlisted Indian startups from 21 countries, including the US, UK, and France, will also be exempt from angel tax going forward. Geopolitical uncertainty around China should also be supportive of future FDI inflows to India. And we've seen this recently with Modi's trip to Washington, where we've seen US companies in particular looking to invest more in India. Apple is already shifting its iPhone 14 production there. Micron announced a new $2.75 billion semiconductor assembly facility. And Tesla has also shown a keen interest in India. And this trend will only continue as India increasingly relaxes FDI rules for Western firms while tightening rules on Chinese investment. So, Ed, that paints quite a, a positive picture about FDI going forward despite the decline over the last year. And you've touched on some of the incentives or initiatives that the Indian government at a federal level is implementing. There's been quite a bit in the media this week around Taiwanese electronics maker Foxconn pulling out of a joint venture with Indian conglomerate Vedanta. But we might come to that in more detail later in the show. But just to, to touch on that, is there any sense then that that's not to be taken as indicative of a, a broader trend, but that it is in relation to specific decisions within those two companies? Yeah, I think the broader trend is definitely much more positive for India. And so I I wouldn't get too caught up. Obviously, something to be aware of. But more generally, we are seeing a much more positive investment environment in India. 
We'll touch on the, the geopolitics, Ross, in a moment, but the, the geopolitics around a broader strategic tensions between the U.S. and China. You touched on this, Ed, but am I right in understanding that the indicators are that that will make India a more attractive location for foreign direct investment? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the trends that we are seeing quite strongly is particularly Western firms looking to reallocate investments and particularly moving operations, but also investments away from China. And increasingly, India is partly given its strong economic performance and credentials. It's looking like the next best location. And then can I zoom out a bit and get your views, Ed, on how the global economic growth slowdown that we're seeing, how is this going to affect India? Yeah, again, a very good reference. I think that India naturally will suffer from slower growth this year. The IMF has forecast 5.9% growth in 2023. But it is important to note that this is still much stronger than many other emerging economies. And India is expected to be less affected by slowing global growth than regional peers like Indonesia or Thailand, for example, both of which are much more reliant on external demand. So we can see that private consumption and investment driving Indian growth is more positive for 2023. And essentially, its strong, longer-term economic prospects could see it become a key economic power. You mentioned before that India has just become the most populous country in the world. Its large domestic consumption base and growing middle class mean that domestic demand will continue to drive strong growth moving forward. And the IMF actually forecasts growth of around 6.5% in the medium term, aided by India's young workforce and supportive policies like those I mentioned previously. In fact, recent analysis suggests that India's GDP could overtake the euro areas as soon as 2050 and mm -hmm. could overtake the US's by 2075. But of course, its huge population also poses some serious risks. Generating enough jobs for a huge population will be challenging and sustaining a fit and healthy population will naturally requires significant and effective fiscal expansion, specifically in infrastructure, health, and education. And while this might be relatively straightforward for the central government to do, we've seen some issues in individual states' capital expenditure, which may require more comprehensive reform in order to allocate that fiscal expansion. Still, one thing's for sure, given their strong economic prospects, and the emerging geopolitical landscape, essentially the rate of strategic engagement with India from other countries has been accelerating. Yeah, and we saw that with the recent state visit by Prime Minister Modi to to the US recently. And while I'm talking, I might bring Ross in now to help us unpack some of the geopolitics Ed touched on as whilst a broader contextual trend presenting some upside for India and opportunities in India. 
But can we just call on you, Ross, to give us a few thoughts around how geopolitics and the trends are, are translating into Indian trade policy? Obviously, the India-UK free trade agreement is something that's received a bit of media attention here in the UK. Can you tell us a bit more about how it's translating in the Indian trade policy more broadly? And then we might um, have a look at the UK-India free trade agreement and and where that's tracking. Sure. Well, I would say that India has been recalibrating its trade policy since the pandemic, primarily for two reasons. So firstly, the Indian government understands that trade is essential to fulfilling the economic potential that Ed has just laid out. India exports less than Japan, Germany, the US and China. And, and bear in mind here that China exports four times as much. So yes, the US is India's largest trading partner, but it really depends on how you read the data. So when you account for Hong Kong, actually China is India's largest or is certainly on a par with the US. So it's not just Western economies that are reckoning with an economic dependence on China. India faces some of these questions as well. The second reason for this recalibration is that India sees strategic value in deepening trade ties with Western economies in a much more challenged geopolitical environment, which you mentioned, and frankly, also pretty volatile neighborhood. So what does this all mean in trade terms? Well, India currently has 13 free trade agreements, but most of those are with East and Southeast Asian economies like Japan, Korea, and the ASEAN membership. But since the pandemic, India kickstarted negotiations with the UK, as you mentioned, but also with the European Union, Canada, Australia, and the United Arab Emirates. It's already agreed a harvest deal with Australia and is working its way uh, towards an FTA and has already also concluded a comprehensive economic partnership agreement with the UAE last year, which is a major trading partner for India. And just coming to the UK, which which you mentioned, Tiffany, and that's central because it just concluded its 11th round of negotiation earlier this month. Watchers of UK trade policy will recall that the British government set itself the deadline of Diwali last year to conclude the agreement. Well, I think it's fair to say that Diwali has been and gone and there's been no deal. And in fact, we're closer to Diwali this year than we are to that previous self-imposed deadline. So the question now is whether the UK can secure a deal with India before the G20 Leaders Summit this September, uh, and also, crucially, before the Indian election campaign assumes priority for Narendra Modi's government. I think also we have to take this in its totality and look at the EU negotiation, because, of course, Britain is now outside the European Union and the nature of those negotiations are different. And India has, again, calibrated its approach to both countries or both markets, I should say, quite differently. So India's negotiations with the EU have proven much more challenging. Some of those reasons are quite obvious and self-evident. So the EU is a much larger market for one, with 27 member states to consider. But also the EU and India are quite protective of the agricultural industries. Uh, Historically, that's less the case for the UK, which is a much more service-based economy. So I would say that businesses looking at these negotiations need to understand that there will inevitably be trade-offs, and that's what we're telling people, that's what we can tell people. So, for example, many British automakers will welcome tariffs being lifted on cars if a deal is done with India, but a lot of pharmaceutical companies will be quite concerned that India doesn't sufficiently protect intellectual property, which has always been a shortcoming of the Indian legal system, and also applies to the tech sector, which Ed mentioned. 
So this isn't just about pharmaceuticals. Uh, likewise, a lot of EU businesses will welcome tariff reductions, uh, but India has historically been insistent on quite high rules of origin requirements and strict rules of origin. Yeah, and I think that, Ross, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, that idea that there's a slight calibration within the Indian trade policy space. Perhaps, and I'd be interested in your views on this, if you think about the regional comprehensive economic partnership at the moment, the world's largest trade agreement had India in the negotiations but did not get over the finish line with India in it. But then if we look at the Indo-Pacific economic framework, the negotiating framework that the US is uh, currently engaged in with a number of, of countries and once finalized will cover 40% of the global economy, India is part of three of the four pillars. But do you think that's a presentation of the that slight calibration or am I making too much of that? No, I think it is. I think it is, it is a calibration. So for example, we've also seen India take quite strong stances at the multilateral level, which might be averse to some of those Western trading partners. So it's negotiating trade deals with the UK, EU, Australia, and Canada. But in Geneva, at the World Trade Organization, is on the opposite side when it comes to intellectual property, for example. So they have been a shaper of the multilateral agenda for some time, uh, and are certainly one of the driving forces behind, for example, the decision to waive patents for COVID-19 vaccines last year and is still pushing now to expand the scope of that waiver uh, in the coming months and years. So I think you're right, it's a recalibration, but it's not necessarily India committing to one camp or the other is what we see at IPAP as well, picking the pillars in which it does participate, but excluding itself from those where it doesn't see its interests perhaps being at stake or certainly in a position to take advantage of of those pillars. And I think that idea, as you say, it's been a shaper of the multilateral agenda, but not necessarily aligned with the position of the UK government, for example, and or or even the US. Is there are overlaps, but it's not a, a carbon copy by any by any stretch. Can you just, for our listeners, spell out where India currently stands on Russia's invasion of Ukraine? I mean, for a lot of our clients, and I'm sure for a lot of prospective clients, the war in Ukraine has brought politics home. And if a lot of businesses were not thinking geopolitically prior to the war or even prior to the pandemic, they certainly are now. And India's positioning is interesting and unique in some ways for a country of its size, but not unique for a leading member of the global south. So India is attempting a delicate balancing act when it comes to the war. So while New Delhi certainly doesn't welcome the instability induced by the Russian invasion, it has refrain from condemning the war at the UN, for example. And as I said, this is not an uncommon position across the global south, most of whom would rather the war hadn't happened, but don't see explicit alignment with NATO as being in their long-term interest. New Delhi has been clear that its posture will be decided by its national interest as much as its national beliefs and values. And this is reflected in its economic relationship uh, with Russia, which remains relatively close in a lot of key sectors despite the war. So Russia has been and remains India's largest supplier of military arms and Indian imports of Russian oil have increased tenfold since the war began. And when you put this to Indian policymakers, they can be quite candid in their response. So the chairman of India's National Security Advisory Board has been pretty straightforward in explaining his country's reluctance to decouple from Russia. As he put it, if we get energy cheap, we buy it. And naturally, Western countries are uncomfortable with India's perceived equidistance between Russia and Ukraine. And it's fair to say 
but the Indian government has rejected this criticism rather robustly, I would say, with the Indian foreign minister calling on Europe to grow out of the mindset that Europe's problems are the world's problems. So there's certainly been some strain, despite parallel FTA negotiations, but this has also not stopped the EU from establishing a trade and tech council with India, for example. So Europe has clearly calculated that India is unlikely to be decisive in bringing the war to a conclusion in the way that China might, and has decided to preserve cooperation in some areas. Of course, so much of what we do at GC, though, is reading between the lines and going deeper than government press releases and newspaper articles as where we add value. And a much more careful reading of India's positioning suggests that New Delhi certainly does not support the war, uh, and the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has sent a series of coded messages to Vladimir Putin, not least when he publicly cautioned Putin that we do not live in an era of war last September. This is the strongest language we have heard from the Indian side. And while this is absolutely nowhere near where NATO would like, it also hasn't stopped, as you mentioned, President Biden from rolling out the red carpet for Modi last month. Indeed. And then you've touched on another incredibly important issue and, and dynamic, and that is, of course, a relationship with China. Getting behind the headlines, as you say, Ross, can you give us a bit more on how India's relationship with China is evolving and should businesses be factoring this into their supply chain design? I know that we've already heard from Ed that there's certainly opportunities and the the data suggests that those opportunities are already being harvested. But I'm interested in your perspective, Ross, from a geopolitical, foreign and trade policy perspective. Well, yeah, this is a major relationship extraordinarily decisive. I mean, Ed mentioned that by 2075, India could be the world's second largest economy uh, behind China. Now, obviously, that forecast is a long way off and they've proven wrong in the past. I mean, if we listened to forecasts like that 40 years ago, Japan would now be the world's largest economy and China would have surpassed the US already. So we should never put too much stock on these forecasts, but it's an important relationship. India's relationship with China is checkered, I would say, with certainly long-running territorial disputes and increasingly economic competition, partly driven, again, as Ed laid out, by India's potential, much of which will rely, to an extent, I would say, on drawing business or investment away from China and convincing investors that India is a safer bet, certainly in the geopolitical context. So in many ways, Indian policymakers also feel encircled by China, particularly in light of the Belt and Road Initiative. So for example, Sri Lankan debt obligations to China rose to $7 billion last year. Uh, And Chinese infrastructure projects account for a really significant proportion of the Maldives' gross domestic product, something like 40%. So when coupled with China's closest with Pakistan, a historic arrival of India, these dependencies limit India's room to maneuver within its own immediate neighborhood. So that certainly doesn't help the relationship. And that's before we consider territorial disputes between the two, which in recent years have escalated to violent clashes in the Galwan Valley, for example, And these have never involved firearms. We should be clear about that. But they have cost the lives of 20 Indian soldiers and an unconfirmed number of their Chinese counterparts back in 2020. Not to mention, it's been reported that India has lost control of more than two dozen patrolling points along its disputed border with China. So why is this all relevant? Well, uh, all of this has led the Indian foreign minister to conclude that relations with China have reached their most difficult phase in the past 30 to 40 years. That's a very significant statement. Uh, And it has also coincided with with the G7's decision to de-risk from China. And this is an issue that an awful lot of businesses, particularly those who operate internationally, are reckoning with now. 
many corporates and investors are coming under pressure to de-risk. And even those who are not under that pressure are beginning to hedge that relations between the G7 and China are not going to markedly improve over the coming months or years. And this poses serious questions for their supply chains. And as a large market on China's doorstep, India has become a large part of that conversation. And many listeners might have heard of the China plus one business model. Uh, but for those who haven't, China plus one refers to a strategy whereby companies avoid concentrating their supply in China and diversify to nearby markets. In this case, of course, we're talking about India. But this is not always as simple as it sounds. So we've seen, as you mentioned, Tiffany, Foxconn's decision to pull out of a joint venture with an Indian partner uh, to build a semiconductor manufacturing facility. And that is largely because India lacks the infrastructure or the well-oiled supply chains that China does to fully serve a factory like that at the moment. So many countries in South and Southeast Asia, including India, can't promise the same kind of supply networks. And so the China plus one model is not without its challenges, but it is one that global companies and investors are actively considering. Ross, that's really interesting. The The de-risking piece that you mentioned, it makes me think of the, the Modi visit to the US. And obviously we've seen the, the language change in the US from decoupling now to picking up a phrase that... President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, has been credited with using, and, and that is de-risking. We've seen lots of media about Prime Minister Modi's state visit to Washington, D.C., and there was a lot around defence, technology, people-to-people links. Can you just drill down a bit more for us on what are the other conclusions, behind-the-headline conclusions that that corporates and investors should draw from his visit to D.C.? Certainly. I think there are moments probably in, in geopolitics that often force investors or corporates to pay attention. So I think, for example, when it comes to Taiwan, Nancy Pelosi's visit last August was one of those moments where a lot of corporates and investors began paying attention to the Taiwan Strait for the first time in a really serious way. And I, I think actually Modi's visit to Washington is in a similar vein. I think it's forced or caused an awful lot of investors and corporates to really think about the US-India relationship more seriously uh, and in the longer term. And Modi's warm welcome in Washington is emblematic of a broader trend. The US and its allies are now pretty clearly determined to deepen relationships with India to counter China's influence. Uh, and aside from India's economic potential, Western democracies see India as an important swing state when it comes to competition with China. I think that's a, that is a term that's going to enter our vocabulary more and more, this idea of geopolitical swing states who operate on a case-by-case and issue-by-issue basis. Trying to read the significance of Modi's visit, I would say it didn't mark the beginning of a new alliance, uh, but certainly the beginning, perhaps, of a coalition of convenience that will continue to diverge on issues like climate, Ukraine, and the multilateral agenda. These are all issues in which India will continue to cut its own path. Uh, And the Indian government has been clear that we live in an age of, quote-unquote, frenemies, where allies can converge on some issues, but disagree on others without becoming estranged. Uh, And the visit was certainly a barometer of that relationship. Biden and Modi agreed to terminate six outstanding trade disputes, including an agreement to exempt some volumes of Indian steel and aluminium from Section 232 tariffs, first imposed, of course, by the Trump administration. And the resolution of these trade disputes and the diplomatic fanfare reflect the Biden administration's eagerness to offset China's influence, even in the face of some skepticism from his own party. So 70 US lawmakers, including big names like Elizabeth Warren and Richard Blumenthal, issued a letter to Biden asking him to raise press freedoms when meeting with Modi. And a small number 
but a number of high-profile representatives boycotted Modi's address to the Houses of Congress. But none of this prompted Biden to change his approach. This tells us that Biden, and I think actually a vast swathe of the American political class, is determined to deepen the relationship with India come what may. So for businesses, a deepening of the US-India relationship could be a source of opportunity, particularly if trade disputes are on the table. And that's an intersection between geopolitics and trade that we are so well placed to help you understand. Picking up on your comments around trade disputes in the US visit, providing a way for the Biden administration to really smooth the waters in the in the trade relationship to an extent between the US and in India. How, how do you see that momentum playing out in the UK-India free trade agreement negotiations? I know you said we passed the deadline, but now if you were if you were to put money on it, would you see that as something that could be concluded or before we start to reach domestic political cycles? Well, it certainly could be concluded. I think we need to understand the trajectory of the negotiation. So yes, a deal was not concluded by last Diwali and the talks reached an impasse late last year. And this is an impasse that was acknowledged by the British government. And the British Home Secretary made some comments on Indian immigration that were not welcomed by the Indian side. And this is followed by a series of of issues which has caused the Indian side perhaps to stall some of the momentum or sap the talk some momentum. So for example, a BBC documentary that the, was published about Prime Minister Modi's role as Chief Minister of Gujarat led to a serious pushback in India and the raiding of BBC's offices there. And likewise, we saw some demonstrations outside the Indian High Commission here in London, where we're all based. And those also prompted some diplomatic backlash from the Indian side. So these geopolitical factors have played a role in the talks. Likewise, I think the UK side is becoming somewhat frustrated that it cannot get the gains it needs on intellectual property, for example. That is a huge factor for an economy that prides itself on life sciences and its pharmaceutical base. And I think there's a lack of confidence that that can be achieved. But we have seen more recently India's commerce minister in London during the talks earlier this month, which suggests that India perhaps is putting now some more political momentum behind them. I think it's it's difficult to say what kind of agreement will be struck. It's possible that if neither side can achieve the level of ambition foreseen from the beginning, we could see a harvest agreement, such as we saw between India and Australia, to keep things alive, but to perhaps avoid some of the thornier questions. I think particularly when we look to the EU as well, because that is ultimately India's priority. And conversations you will have with Indian officials will tell you that, that ultimately they could live without an agreement with the UK, but an agreement with the EU is quite a prize indeed. But those negotiations will be much more long running. So as I mentioned, you've got now a trade and technology council, which really has been designed to keep the conversation going through the election period, perhaps on the other side. In closing, I'm really interested, Ed, in, in just circling back to your idea about the, the trend in geopolitics and that that tending positively for India. Is there anything that you wanted to add to that in, in closing and the projections of, of the Indian economy? Thanks very much, Tiffany. Interesting that you mentioned Modi's recent trip to DC. You know, it's interesting that New Delhi is keen to align more closely with the West, particularly to bolster its security you know, through partnerships like the Quad, but also new defense and trade agreements with the US. But it's also important to remember that India is one of the most important voices in the BRICS bloc. And uh, the recent BRICS foreign ministers meeting showed quite a clear 
attempt to reduce economic dependence on the West and more specifically the US dollar. So it, it is a tricky line to tread that India's trying to, to play in terms of this multi-alignment strategy. But I do think that geopolitically, a lot of countries in the global South, particularly in Southeast Asia and Africa, may actually view India as a role model for their own multi-alignment strategies. But yeah, I think essentially the multi-alignment strategy policy that India is, is choosing to take in terms of its foreign policy will ensure that it continues to benefit from a range of partners, as you alluded to, Ross. And I think that's only going to, India's only going to benefit more the more the geopolitical world fragments. And together with enhancing its economic might, it will also expand its voice on the global stage. And I, I mentioned its economic might there, just, just a couple of closing remarks on the economy. Essentially, India's near-term growth outlook is the strongest in the G20. And as I already alluded to, this is driven by strong demographics and supportive policies. And at the end of the day, India is very well positioned to beginning to begin fulfilling its economic potential. Again, strong demographics mean that India will be less affected by slowing global growth and should maintain robust, rapid growth in the medium term, which will attract investment naturally. And Ross, I'm going to give you the chance to have the final final word for our discussion. Well, I think for those listening who want to pay attention to India more closely, you're never going to get a better opportunity than upcoming elections. They have to be called by next May, and they certainly are likely to happen, I think, in the spring. And it's often said that elections hold a mirror up to whatever society uh, is voting at that particular time. And I think that these elections will be a barometer for India's trajectory as a country at a social level, at a political and economic level, and also on foreign policy. But for those who are interested by what Ed, Tiffany, and I have been saying, I think that's absolutely what you should be paying attention to. Narendra Modi, the incumbent, is highly likely to be re-elected. I think even the main opposition party in India would privately and sometimes publicly concede that that is now a foregone conclusion. He may not do quite as well as he did last time around, 38% of the vote, having lost power in the state of Karnataka recently. But again, Karnataka is in the south of the country and it's not a stronghold for Modi. It was always a place that was nice to have, but not essential. So that is what I would be advising anyone listening to pay attention to, not at a granular level, but it is an extraordinarily consequential country, as we've said, the world's largest democracy, potentially by the end of this decade, the world's third largest economy, which could double in size. And therefore, we should be paying attention to how Indians vote and what their prime minister has to say over the course of the election campaign. And of course, it will be interesting to see the outcomes of the, the G20 summit uh, leader summit that's scheduled for September and as you mentioned at the the BRICS summit coming up and also India hosted the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting this year so definitely has a wide range of memberships and as we've all touched on the influence is significant and based on the comments that both Ed and Ross have shared today and the analysis that we've listened to clearly that is growing both economically but also in the geopolitical space. Thank you both for your insights. A really excellent opportunity to unpack the the current circumstance, but also the trajectory that the Indian economy is on and the opportunities there. Well, 
If you've been interested in anything we've had to say, and if your business is exposed to geopolitical risk in India or averse to India, please do let us know. Um, we exist to help you and our clients navigate geopolitical and policy risk. So you can always reach out to Ed, Tiffany and I via our website. That will be at www.global-council.com or in the podcast notes. 